His brother said, Are you indeed to be a king over us? And they hated him even more because of his dreams and all of his words. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is a strange thing to share the dreams that we dream with other people. To us, our dreams can feel so very real, even though as soon as we wake, we know that they're not, and yet more often than not, if we're moved by a particularly imaginative vision, we will tell others what we saw or heard or experienced in our dreams. All the while, we know that the people we're telling about our dreams, they don't care at all about what we dreamed about last night. And there's a better than good chance that every one of us here has had a dream at some point or another that left us mad at someone because of what they did to us in our dream, even though they didn't do anything to us in reality. Why would we do that? How odd that we would mistreat someone because of what they did to us in a dream. And yet, it's so true to our human nature. Listen, Jacob, Israel, settles in the land of his father Isaac, and contrary to the controversial beginnings of his life, he grows to have a large and prosperous family. Among his many children, Joseph is his favorite. And Joseph was a dreamer. Now, the parallels in Scripture at times can be quite staggering. Jacob has a vision of a ladder that stretches into the heads. He sees angels ascending and descending on the ladder. Joseph has a vision, a dream of his brothers bowing down to him. Jacob's story culminates in his reconciliation with his brother Esau. Joseph's tale concludes with his brothers as well. And yet these two figures could not be more different. Jacob is selfish. Joseph is kind. Jacob runs away from all of his problems. Joseph walks right into them. Jacob throws his life away, and Joseph himself is the one who is thrown away. Joseph the baby of the family. He dreams of these sheaves in a field bowing down to him. He has visions of his family relying on him for their own deliverance. And it would be enough to just have those dreams. But he gets it in his thick skull. I need to tell my brothers about what I dreamed. And his brothers already despise him. That's the word scripture used. They despise him because their father loves him most of all and even gets inexplicably leave. Scripture kind of thinks that maybe he'll come back later to try to save his brothers, or to save his brother in the whole. But the remaining brothers, they see a caravan coming toward them on the horizon, and they get an idea. Let's not leave him in the pit. Let's sell him into slavery. Now, if this were a Netflix show, that's where episode one would end. You know, it's a cliffhanger. You know, you see this boy thrown into a pit, and the, sky start, or the, the screen starts to go black, but then they see the caravan, and this one brother has a big smile. Oh, I know. I know what we're going to do to this dreamer. Here ends the episode. And of course, it's a cliffhanger. You want to know what's going to happen next, but Netflix doesn't even let you choose. The next episode just starts playing right away. Here's what I found. Ah, and my watch is telling me what she found. This is a strange and bewildering tale, even among the wild new world of the Bible. The final quarter of Genesis is devoted to this one boy and his life. The final quarter of the first book of the Bible is about Joseph. And the themes that follow in his story after he's thrown into a pit, they have shown up in countless other stories, themes of exile and hiddenness and the hero's journey, riches to rags, rags to riches, drama, mystery, hope. There's even a little bit of lust halfway through. As Joseph disappears into the horizon, his brothers take his aforementioned not-actually-technicolor dream coat and they dip it in fresh blood and they bring it to their father and they say he was eaten 
by wild animals, your son is dead. And frankly, he might as well be dead. He is cut off completely from his family, from the land of his birth, from the story of God's people. He travels as a slave. He is going to be a stranger in a strange land without any hope in the world. He no longer has his father's love, and he no longer even has his special jacket. Now, Jacob responds to the news of his favorite son's death by ripping his own jacket, and he vows to live a life of mourning until the day that he dies. So why is it that Joseph's brothers throw him into a pit, and then sell him as a slave. Those of us with brothers and sisters know firsthand the strangeness of siblings. We know about the tensions and the pains and the jealousy that can be all too present within a family, but the kind of domestic squabbles we might be familiar with are a far cry from taking our little brother and selling him as a slave. Why? Why is it that when they hear of their brother's dream, the sons of Jacob sell Joseph into slavery. Why? Makes me think of another question. Why is it that when God comes to us in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, why is it that we take God and we nail him to a cross? Why? Joseph is now a slave. He is sold to the captain of Pharaoh's guard in Egypt, a man named Potiphar. A truly wild narrative ensues that is rated R, probably NC-17. Can't really tell that part of the story from the pulpit. But for the sake of today, it's enough to know that his time there ends with his arrest and him being thrown in jail. And it comes to pass that while he's in prison in Egypt as a slave, Pharaoh has a set of experiences that require someone who can interpret dreams. Now, this dreamer of dreams from the shackles of slavery and imprisonment, he has earned for himself a reputation of helping to interpret people's dreams, and he is called before Pharaoh's throne. Pharaoh shares with him, I have this dream. There are seven skinny cows, and they keep eating seven fat cows, but they themselves don't get any bigger. And there are seven corn stalks, and they keep eating these seven corn stalks that are withered, but they don't get any bigger. Joseph, slave of mine, what does it all mean? And to his credit, the dreamer tells Pharaoh that Egypt will have seven good years of harvest and they will have seven years of famine. That if Pharaoh were smart, he would find someone who could be organized to store up all the surplus for seven years and save it so that for the following seven years, it could be redistributed to everybody in their need. If only you had someone, Pharaoh, who could do that job for you. And you know who Pharaoh picks to do the job? Joseph, the slave. In just a few short verses, this dreamer from slavery is freed. He is given a wife, and he is given total authority in Egypt. And when the time comes, his interpretation is proven correct, and he is the one who saves Egypt, this dreamer of dreams. Now, again, if this were a Netflix series, this is where it would end. This would be the conclusion. With all these new robes that he has, with all the power, with his own family, with all the food saving a nation, this would be when the credits would start to roll with like a nice acoustic guitar playing behind it because everything's been made right in the world. He's gone from riches to rags and back again. The story of redemption. But God has another ending in store. The famine in Egypt is so bad that it's also affecting the surrounding nations, so much so that Joseph's family is stuck in destitution. They are in need of salvation. They, the brothers who had abandoned him are commanded by their father to seek out help in a foreign land. They travel to Egypt and they beg for food from their brother, but they don't recognize him. 
It's been a long time since they threw him in that pit and sold him as a slave. They don't recognize him. And not only do they approach him and beg for his compassion, they literally bow down to him. And his dream has come true. Now, there's great tension in the ensuing narrative with Joseph. He goes back and forth. He is upset. He is hurt. He is pained. He does not know what to do to these brothers who had betrayed him. There's these requests that are made back and forth, and it all culminates in this moment in which Scripture says Joseph could no longer control himself, and he tells them the truth. I am your brother, the one you sold as a slave. He weeps so loudly in the moment that Scripture says everyone in the entire palace could hear him cry, and his brothers are terrified. Rightly so. They deserve judgment. They're about to get it. And yet, instead of rejecting the brothers that rejected him, Joseph embraces them. He literally falls upon them, and he covers them with tears and with kisses. I mean, the scene is staggering. They offer, when they find out who he really is, they offer to become slaves to him because of what they did to him. And instead, he forgives them. He loves them, and he says, do not be angry with yourselves because of what you did to me. He invites them to live in Egypt where they themselves were prosper. Even Jacob travels to the strange land and the entire family is reunited and reconciled. And that's where the real ending is. Joseph does for his brothers what they don't deserve at all. They come to Egypt without a hope in the world, and the only one who can do anything for them is the one they did everything to. They offer to become slaves to the one they enslaved, and instead he gives them freedom. A freedom not only to, to thrive and to eat and to live, but they are freed from the shame and the guilt of everything they had done. In short, he gives them grace. Now, when I arrived at Altamans this week as the chaplain, I really didn't know what to expect. I'd heard stories about what it might be like, but I, I kind of went in with an open heart, and I just tried to jump in and do everything that I could to be a good chaplain. I really want to just be invited back next summer. And like I said earlier, after breakfast, we would gather for, for morning watch, and we would talk about scripture, and we would pray, and we would sing, and we would dance, and during the day, I'd have chaplain times where the kids would ask any question they wanted, and every evening, we had worship, and, and I hiked up to the falls, and I climbed up on the catwalk, and I did all these things, and throughout the week, we had these themes, that we are the body of Christ. Every one of us has a part to play, and if we want to try to get rid of one part of the body, the whole body dies. We are all in this together, that we are a new, beloved community, and the only way we can be a beloved community is by showing each other grace and receiving grace. When we had worship one night, I love asking this, I said, church, you know, we use a lot of words in church, and grace is a very churchy word. I talk about grace all the time, and I don't even know if I know what the word grace means. So to all of you, all you children here at camp, what do you think the word grace means? What do you think grace means? There was a boy in the front row. He put his hand up right away. I said, what do you think grace means? He said, Grace is what you have to do if you want to eat. <laughs> so that's actually kind of true, I guess. Any other uh, examples of what you think grace is? And one kid in the back raised his hand. He said, I don't know what grace is, but I do know it's amazing. <laughs> and one of the counselors standing by the wall said, grace is loving someone even when they don't deserve it. Grace is loving someone even when they don't deserve it. 
And so I, I kept going. I said, okay, so now we kind of know what grace is, but why does God offer us grace, this love that we don't deserve? Why does God offer it to us? And Caleb Anderson, the young theologian, Caleb Anderson from our church, he raised his hand. He said, because, Pastor Taylor, God's just built different, and that's a fact. God's built different, and that's straight facts. The first night we were at camp, all the kids just kind of they shuffled around awkwardly. You know, here they are, a bunch of relative strangers, and they're being forced to live in the woods for a week. I just watched this kind of awkwardness. It's like the first day of middle school. You know, you don't know who, who is the cool kid, who do I want to hang out with, who's going to be kind, who's going to be mean, who's going to be a bully, all this sort of stuff. It's going on, and I'm watching it. Over the following days, I witnessed some miracles, to use one of Braylon's words while we were there, I witnessed these miracles of joy and laughter and the bonds of new friendship, but I also saw disagreements. And I saw a lot of frustrations. I heard a lot of deep sighs, and I saw more than a few uh, hair flips as someone walked away in the other direction. But on our very last night, Thursday night, we gathered around a campfire, and I told every camper there about Jesus' last night with his friends, that on the final night, he took a loaf of bread and a cup and he looked at all of them and said, I'm with you, always, even until the very end. And I prayed over the bread, and I prayed over the cup, and I gave it to the unit counselors, and they broke off with their units, and they took bread, and they looked at each one of the kids, and they said, God loves you a whole lot. And each of those kids took the bread, and they dipped it in the cup, and they received Christ. Quite a few of these kids have never darkened the doors of a church in their life. And they got to have communion. And I watched. I watched as they received Jesus and they embraced one another with tears and with hugs. I watched them shake as they were holding each other. I heard them sing songs about Jesus. I experienced campers giving love and receiving love without any expectation of reciprocation. In short, I saw grace. On the day of Easter, Jesus resurrected from the grave. He returns with the signs of the cross, holes in his hands, holes in his feet, a hole in his side, and he returns not to the best and the brightest and the most faithful. He returns to the very people who abandoned them. And he says, I am still with you. I still love you. In the kingdom of God, the new economy of grace is really weird. It's everything for nothing. It's forgiveness. It's mercy and love that we don't deserve. It's good news for people who are drowning in bad news. If Joseph, if Joseph was willing to forgive his brothers after all they had done, if Jesus is willing to return to the disciples who abandoned him and denied him, just imagine, just imagine what we could do with a new economy of grace. It could be amazing. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.